So I'm uh, Nicolas Bornozis and uh, I of Capital Inc. And I am really delighted and honored to have with us uh, at the keynote uh, speaker session, uh, Richard Molen and uh, Angela Chow. Uh, Richard Molen, uh, you all know Richard. Uh, by the way, I will not steal the thunder from Richard introducing Angela. I will let him do this. Uh, Richard, I'm sure you all know him. He's a particularly well-known figure in the global maritime industry. Richard has a footprint in the industry, both as a ship owner and also as somebody who cares and contributes to broader uh, industry topics. So Richard is uh, president uh, and, uh, uh, and the owner of Intrepid Shipping. Uh, before that, he held the position with OMI for a long period of time. And uh, he's very well known for his broader industry footprint um, as chairman of Intertanko. Uh, he's also on uh, the board of um, Siemens Church, uh, chairman. Uh, I mean, Richard has a very long footprint uh, in terms of his contribution to various associations uh, in the industry. Um, and uh, I would let him, and uh, I would like to also thank him for being instrumental to convince Angela to be with us today. And before turning it over to Richard, I would like to, uh, to mention uh, on a personal base, the, you know, personal note, the following. Uh, I graduated from Harvard Business School in 1982 and uh, from 1980 to 1982, I was the president of the International Shipping Club. So one of the first things that I did at the time was I invited Richard to uh, make a presentation to the Harvard Business School students and also the MIT students because we had Professor Marcus at the time who was delivering an excellent course at MIT and Richard came, uh, he was at OMI and he spoke to the students. And of course the highlight was that at the time I had the unique privilege to uh, organize a presentation for Captain Chow who came uh, and again addressed uh, the Harvard Business School and the MIT students on uh, international shipping. So I have to say it, I'm particularly touched to be able to have you both uh, uh, here today. I'd like to thank you and now I will disappear and uh, turn it over to Richard and Angela. And thank you, Nicholas. And you're not really disappearing. We, we know you'll be back. Uh, Nicholas's story just shows what a small world in many ways shipping is where we may span all the oceans of the globe, all the trade routes and carry 90% of the goods on earth, but people tend to know each other. And I met Nicholas at Harvard Business School. And uh, funny, that was my first business lunch uh, uh, in 1974, where my boss, Mike Klebanoff, who'd originally been born in China, invited me to meet his very good friend and one of the sharpest guys in the industry from, from Mike's point of view. He wanted me to meet Dr. James Chow. So my first business lunch in September 1974 was with Angela's dad. And uh, I don't know what grade of school Angela was in then, but she was not there. Uh, but it's a small world. People know each other, which uh, has an impact on this industry. And uh, I'd like to introduce Angela now. She is the chairperson and CEO of the Foremost Group, a company her mom and dad founded in 1964. Uh, they have 5 million tons of dead dry cargo ships. Uh, that's their specialty. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to uh, be here with Angela today. Angela. Thank you so much, Richard, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Nicholas um, and Capital Link for having me. I'm very honored to be here today. Um, so just a short intro, because I know Richard hit the highlights. But as he said, 
Foremost Group is an American shipping company founded in 1964. That was 56 years ago by my parents. Uh, Dr. James S.C. Chow is my father and my mother is Mrs. Ruth Mulan Chu Chow. Uh, Foremost owns and manages a eco-friendly fleet of dry bulk carriers, all modern. The average age of our fleet is five years or less and has been for the last 30 years. So while that is a statistic often touted by soon to go public companies, this is a uh, statistic that we have been able to maintain and uphold for 30 years going. Um, so that's also one of the ways we maintain our eco-friendly fleet, continuously upgrading our tonnage and incorporating the latest technologies and efficiencies in ship hull design um, into our ships. So as Richard said, we, our fleet is um, over 5 million dead weight and we can carry almost 20 million tons of the major dry bulk commodities annually in the world. Um, when I joined the company in 1996, since we're talking a little bit about history, and history is so important, I often think that I kind of came of age during the regulation of our industry. So when I joined the company in 1996, I was tasked with ISM. And the industry had never seen such regulation. And there was a lot of confusion as to what and how to implement. While the principles were simple, and our company anyway was basically doing everything already, it had to be organized in a very different format than what our management and technical staff were used to. So my father used to say that I was ignorant. I didn't know how much the veterans in the industry were struggling with how, much, with how to comply. And so I just went at it. I, went, I visited all the ships, I met all the captains, I met all the chief engineers, I talked to everybody, I asked every dumb question in, um, that I could think of or that I wanted to, and I just learned. I soaked it all in, and I actually think that was just an invaluable experience in my entry into our industry and the company. Um, I learned so much from our crew, the captains, chief engineers, and the crew, um, and thankfully I was also able to earn their respect, and so that for me was the best way to kind of start in the company and join this wonderful industry. Um, and so I'm just really happy to be in it and be happy with to be with you here today. That's interesting, the comment about ISM, which is International Safety Management, for those who are not technically oriented. And the late 90s was a real time of reckoning in shipping. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a decade after the Exxon Valdez, the regulations had been uh, up to another level, and the industry was having trouble complying. And the biggest challenge was attitude of the leaders of the industry. And uh, the good companies in the industry were doing things right, but didn't like to be regulated. Uh, but they were going to be more regulated if they didn't get the bad companies in the industry up to a higher level. And that's where ISM came in and where the leadership uh, of organizations like Intertanko, Intercargo, IMO, and others came along. So Angela came in at a very interesting time where the regulations were, were finally biting and the industry hasn't been the same since. Uh, not the same. Uh, nowadays, uh, uh, how much of your time and senior management do you feel is spent on the regulatory side versus uh, commercial? Well, they're inter in inextricably linked now. Um, we're lucky enough to have a handful of charters in the world that we work with. And we all, we work with the first class charters like Cargill, Bungie, Louis Dreyfus, NYK, MOL. And so, Compliance has become part of our everyday life. It is important. And in fact, our company tries to exceed um, just the regulations 
and try to be on the forefront of environmental compliance and incorporation of technologies into our ships, both hardware, software, and actual ship hull design. And so I, I it's very hard to, um, to separate them out because they are now inextricably linked. And in terms of, uh, of obtaining financing uh, as a private company, and perhaps for the public companies when it comes to their uh, both IPOs and, and additional capital raises, uh, do you see, see the technical side being important in terms of dealing with the financial industry and getting support uh, for uh, your growth of the company? Honestly, I don't think that they spend enough time on it. I think that oftentimes these financiers see um, ships as a commodity and it's kind of an asset-based approach to financing and it's a secured financing for them and they don't differentiate between what the ship is, um, where it's being built, who the management company is, what kinds of technologies are going on board. They just don't have that knowledge and there isn't enough differentiation. I think what's been really um, good in our industry over the last 25 years is that the charters now are becoming more responsible and more differentiating with regards to who their owners and managers are. But that's still something that is relatively new and still needs to have further differentiation. Um, and the charters still don't always pay for it. <laughs> so we're always in the, on the forefront because we wanna be on the right side of history and we wanna do what's right. Well, the, what you said parallels what I said at this conference, uh, uh, I think three years ago. And I suggested that if uh, the lenders and those who raise capital, the people who invest capital, private equity, analysts, if they really want to understand what makes a shipping company tick, uh, one bellwether is how they treat their mariners. Because mm -hmm. if they're abusing their mariners who are out at sea and kind of out of sight, imagine their attitude towards their shareholders who are also out of sight. And, uh, and, and you picked another, which is the uh, technical and, and safety expertise of the company, which is tied in also with your care of the mariners and their training. So, so it's uh, interesting, absolutely. I think your point about the mariners is so important because they're on the forefront of our industry and they are our essential workers. So my father was a captain himself. He was a, you know, he studied navigation as an undergraduate and then he worked his way up from deck cadet all the way up to captain. He became one of the youngest ocean going, or he became the youngest ocean going captain um, of his time. He was 29 at the time. And so we actually understand it's part of our DNA and our company culture that we spend an enormous time, amount of time on crewing and treating our crew well and going on board and visiting our ships. So this is another thing that I think that, you know, financiers need to differentiate um, in terms of management. Do they really know their ships? Do they really know what technologies they're putting on board and who is crewing these ships and how does that company treat those crew? Um, oftentimes crew are, a faceless um, you know, army on board the ship. But actually, you know, the good performance of a ship really does count a lot, not just on um, how well the ship is built in the beginning, but also how those crew continue to perform and maintain the ship. So when the crew care about their living quarters, so for instance, when we go on board the ships, we look at, are they putting plants in their rooms? You know, are they taking care of their accommodations as though it's their home. And then you know you have a healthy, mentally healthy 
ship as well. So these are little things that are part of management, but have a human side of management that are so important to the well-being of the ship and its performance. Maybe another way to put this is if you're an investor or a lender, uh, you don't want to be, uh, you don't want your investment or your, your loan destroyed because the ship owner is an incompetent operator, you know, moral operator, uh, uh, or just uh, uh, prioritizing everything else except the running of the ship. Uh, you're taking market risk and other risks uh, when you do a loan, but why take the risk of the ship owner not knowing what they're doing or purposely not doing it well. Those are easy things to do your due diligence on. And uh, you can cross one big risk off and just focus on the rest. So I agree, it's a, it's a shame that more uh, people from the financial industry haven't taken this deeper look, the old uh, Ross Perot look under the hood type approach. And I think good owners appreciate it when, when this is done because they're proud of what they've been doing. Uh, we're, while we're on crew, the COVID challenge right now, uh, of course, it's a commercial challenge to the to the to industry, but there's also the operating challenge. I wonder if you'd talk about that for a moment, Angela. Yeah. So COVID, I think one of the tragedies of COVID. There's so many tragedies, and um, I'm so sorry to all of the people out there who's who have been affected by this, or who have family and loved ones that have been affected by this. It's also been horrible for the crew. So there are two sides of this coin. Most people are just, most people don't realize that there are crew members that are on board these ships for longer than they would like to be. But it's not just that they're on board longer than they'd like to be, it's the uncertainty of when they can disembark. And so there's all these, most countries in the world do not allow seafarers to disembark and go home because they don't want obviously, you know, these quarantine issues. Um, but the other side of that is that there are also thousands and tens of thousands of seafarers waiting at home, not knowing when they can go on board ships. So there are seafarers that actually have to go on board, earn incomes for their families, and also accumulate the sea time that they need in order to be promoted to the next level, which also affects their salary income stream for the future. So it's, um, you know, we've been doing a lot with our crew. We've been having, giving them more access to internet calling and FaceTiming with their families so that they, the mental health issues are you know, kept under control and that they maintain a happy, healthy outlook. Um, we are you know, raising wages on standby pay because those seafarers that can't get on board the ships are worried for you know, their income stream. Um, we're taking a lot of these types of actions uh, to help the crewing situation. That is, right now we have no um, real knowledge of when all of these crew members will have free repatriation um, comings and goings. So that's going to be an, a big issue going forward as well, for at least until we get this whole COVID-19 situation under control. To put a frame of reference on it, there's probably 2 million mariners out there at sea and their normal tour at sea is anywhere from five months to nine or 10 months. And, uh, there are many out there now who've been stuck on their ships for over a year because they simply can't get off. No country will let them transit or fly or, or be land on the other end. And you're talking about some real uh, personal problems going on. Uh, very high quality charters, uh, while they're not reaching in their pockets so much to help the owners, 
the high quality charters are helping by repositioning ships to locations where the, the owner can then uh, change the crew. Our, our charter, Cargill's done that several times. I hope others are doing it. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real industry challenge, but much worse in airlines where people only on board the plane for a few hours at a time. So uh, that's, that's occupying a lot of uh, people's efforts. Uh, I'm switching gears just a little bit on this issue of the industry and the public. Uh, I noticed on Angelo's website that there's frequently asked questions, and I liked one of them, which said, can I hire foremost to ship goods for me? Kind of like a, a member of the public calling in uh, uh, Federal Express and saying, hey, I'd like to ship something. Can you do it for me? Uh, in our industry, it isn't done publicly. It's a private industry in terms of companies negotiating with each other for transportation. It's not a, so much a public market. It's uh, uh, big industrial companies, perhaps through brokers to ship owners. It's hidden from the public. Uh, while the industry is hidden from the public, very few people in the public know what ships do. If you ask somebody to name a ship, they probably name Titanic. Uh, and uh, however, 90% of the goods on earth move by sea. And uh, as a hidden industry, we find part of our industry going public in recent decades. So here we have a public companies in an industry which is largely hidden from the public. Uh, Angela, what are your thoughts on being private, uh, some of the advantages of it, perhaps some disadvantages, and uh, any thoughts you might have on, on public shipping companies? Yes. Um, you know, your point about us being a hidden industry is a really important one, because I think that we need to do a better job of educating the general public as to what we do. We actually seamlessly and invisibly transport 90% of the world's goods. That's 11.9 billion tons of goods being shipped annually. That's 1.6 billion tons per person every year. So that's actually pretty incredible. I don't think people realize how um, essential we are to their lives, that we subsidize their standard of living, and um, that we make life a lot more comfortable. So being a hidden industry is one way to put it. I, I think we're a little bit of an invisible industry and we don't um, get the credit that we should. And I also don't think we get the credit of being as environmentally friendly as we should. So I'm incredibly proud to be in the shipping industry. We are the most environmentally friendly mode of transportation. We far outperform airlines, rail, trucking. Um, and so I think that we have a very important part, a uh, job in society and contribution to society. And so, that dovetails with some other issues that we may be talking about later on. Um, but I do think it's important to raise that when we transport 90% of the world's goods, we are only contributing about 2.1 to 2.2% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so we, again, are the most environmentally friendly mode of transportation. That is not um, our reputation in the world, particularly among the general population. So when you talk about, um, private companies and public companies, only 10% of the world's fleet is in public companies. And yet, again, most of the general population's knowledge of shipping is either through those 10% of public companies, or they think that we're just FedEx or UPS. So going back to the question on the website, the reason why we put that on the website is because you would be surprised at how many times we actually received the question. Oh, so I've got some things you know, that I'd like to, some furniture that I'd like to ship. Can you help us out? Um, and I say, well, you know, that's not really the type of shipping that we do. And again, shipping has so many different segments. We're such a dynamic and interesting industry. There's tankers, 
there's bulk carriers, there's car carriers, there's, you know, there's so many different types of ships, containers, and there's no differentiation or um, understanding of the segmentation in the general population. So that we also need to do a better job of doing. The public-private debate is one that uh, you know, we could spend a lot of time, and it's a really interesting one. We, of course, we have stayed private, um, and you know, we, we will continue to remain so for the time being. Um, I think what's really interesting and in some ways more important is the idea of the family control. The family founder control, I think, is one that is really important, not just in shipping, but in all industries, um, in terms of that public model. It's a model that generates incredible value for both the company, the industry, and its shareholders, and the general stakeholders. Um, stock markets are so volatile. Actually, in our industry, is far more volatile than the stock markets. So as we all saw, you know, first half this year, the stock markets have done fine. The dry bulk indices have seesawed much more volatilely than any of the markets did. And even when the stock markets had their meltdown on March 23rd or whatever that low point nadir was, um, our industries had far greater vicissitudes. When we had the 2008 financial crash, the stock markets were down quite a bit, but we lost 97% of our value. I mean, that's how much our markets fell. So when I have my friends in finance, our, you know, our alumni from wonderful HBS, and they talk about the stock market volatility, volatility or tech volatility, I say, that's nothing. Get into shipping, then we'll talk about volatility. But what that volatility does is makes it very hard to manage a public company for the long term. And so one of the advantages that we find right now anyway, as a private company, is that we can take the long-term view. We don't have to be swayed by quarter-to-quarter -quarter earnings. We can make investments for the future. We can be on the right side of history in the way that we want to be. We can research and develop things and technologies that we want to for the long-term. And that for us has been a very important cultural point for our company. So as we mentioned earlier, you know, the company was founded in 1964. So we're 56 years and going. And when my parents started this company, they did so with very, very humble origins and expectations. And so as the second generation carrying on the legacy of my parents, while also bringing this company into the 21st century, I feel an awesome responsibility to uphold these values and bring honor to my parents by leading the company in a way that would make them proud. And so that is why, for me, this family control is so important and is a tremendous value when companies aren't just doing what is legal and allowed, but it's doing the right thing. There's a difference between having a right to do something and it being the right thing to do. And we need to get back to what's the right thing to do. And um, that's why I'm in this industry and that's why I love what I do. What about you? Uh... You mentioned public companies, uh, but with family control. Uh, are there parallels in other industries where that has worked well? Uh, we see some of that in shipping, and, and it's got mixed results. But what about outside shipping? So I think that's, okay, so the um, inside shipping, I think, 
you actually also serve on the board of TK, which is a wonderful company, Family Control, also has strong core family values, um, professional management, but core, core family values that are still there and very important to the fabric and culture of that company. Other shipping companies that may have so-called family control that have not been um, as successful a model, I think, are because they don't have the corporate governance that is necessary. They don't have truly independent directors. Um, there hasn't been a, a good separation of related party transactions. That's something very important. So, um, you know, those are all things that I think the a lot of the early shipping companies that went public um, kind of spoiled it for many of the other shipping companies to come. And so I think that's why a lot of other companies don't want to associate themselves in that same way. And so have remained, like us, we've remained private. Um, in terms of other industries, I think that we have um, family control. We see it in lots of different industries. So one of the um, things that my husband and I always talk about is the value of family values and control in a lot of these companies. So he was the independent director for Dell, um, for Facebook, for Walmart. And so each of those have family founder control and they also bring integrity, long-term view um, and values that just permeate the company in a way that's really important and brings long-term value both to the company and its shareholders. That is very interesting because uh, you know, some of the biggest shipping companies that are public are family controlled or large family roles. And you've put your finger on some of the challenges, the conflicts of interest, the appropriate use of outside directors and, uh, and just overall governance. Uh, I think we're reaching near the end of our time. Uh, uh, Nicholas, how much time do we have left? I think we are, uh, we can spend hours with you and Angela, but I'm afraid we have come to the end of the, uh, of the time. I only have one more question for Angela. Could you uh, just uh, tell us a little about your latest new building? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very proud to say I have a new baby boy. Um, and uh, he's adorable. I may say so myself. Um, and he's our latest new building. And his name is? Uh, James Chow Breyer. After yeah, dad yeah. and granddad. After dad and granddad and Chow Breyer is a double barrel of my husband and my last <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Angela, and congratulations. And Nicholas, I pass the control back to you. Well, I just thank want you to so say much. thank you to both of you. It's been a privilege to have you with us uh, and a delight and again, and I, and I hope we'll have the chance to continue our discussion, maybe do a webinar together, because you have so much to, to share. Uh, so thank you to both of you. Thank you, Nicholas. Nice thank to you. be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.